0: Oh, there we go. They can hear me. I mean, I talk loud enough. I'm Superman, after all. <clears throat> Sorry. I won't let that go to my head. But you call me that all you want, I'll be okay with it. <laughs> all right. So so we're in a series uh, around the doctrines of grace, uh, a mini-series. It's one of our distinct positions that we hold. We don't ask that everyone... Affirm these things, but but there are reasons why we hold them. But more than that, there are reasons why we've sought to teach through them. Um, A a few weeks ago, Dave preached a message. Is our first distinct position that we hold. He preached a message about the centrality of the gospel, and he demonstrated to you through the through the text, through the scripture, that the gospel isn't just something that we need for the beginning of our Christian life, but it's, it's central to all of our Christian life. It's central to all we do as individuals, as Christians, and all we are and all we do as a church. It is central to us. We believe, along with what Paul says in Romans 1, and he actually mentioned this in 1 Corinthians as well, but that we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto life. Like, it's not just a, an empty set of words. It's not just like the typical lesson you might hear when you go to class at school. This is, there is power in the gospel that leads us into life, that informs us for life, that prepares us and equips us to live life. And it's necessary for us to understand it, to know it, to, to, to consider it, to, to grow in our faith around it. But what I found as I speak with people about the gospel, not just people here, but just people in general, as I meet with people and they're struggling over different circumstances, situations, or just talking to them about where they're at in their faith, And I asked them about the gospel. What is it that you think about the gospel? How would you define the gospel? When did you believe the gospel? Those kind of things. I find and have found over the course of the 12 years that we've been working to see this church planted, um, I found that people really struggle talking about it. They really struggle defining it, they really struggle expressing it. it. It could be nerves you know, it could be there's a pastor talking to me and asking me a doctrinal question and it could be nerves and, oh, he's not going to affirm my answer, he's not going to agree with me or something like that. It, it could be that, that that to define the gospel and to speak of the gospel is a really weighty matter. It could be that oh, I really just want to be very precise in my words. I want to I speak clearly about what it is. I don't want to be misunderstood because talking about the gospel is is weightier than talking about the weather. Or it could be, That at some point, we have become so concerned and preoccupied with everything else that we've forgotten or ignored or just outright rejected the truth that the gospel is the thing that gives us the power to live. It, it, to me, it's no wonder that the American church is, is in the place it's at. It's no wonder to me that the American church is suffering and struggling in so many ways, and it has been for so many years. Because as we look around the landscape of the American church, we have been throwing off doctrine and theology as if they don't matter. We, we, we have the gospel. We have what Paul says is the power of God unto life. Life. And yet we look to our programs and our methods and our own power and our own, our own charisma, our own uh, attractiveness, if you will, to try to live this life. We, we have the gospel. We have what Paul says is the power of God unto life. And yet we are more ready to talk about the TV shows we watch and the movies we watch and the details of those shows that have been going on for years. We are more ready. And I, again, I'm not trying to, to, to just say this. Is, this is the general reality of the church in America today. This is just the truth of where we're at. We, we have demonstrated a level of biblical illiteracy is just astonishing. It's really concerning. We're, we're better able to talk about what's wrong with Republicans or Democrats or what's right with Republicans or Democrats from our perspective more than we are the the doctrines that God has presented to us in the gospel. Some of us spend years and years and years preparing to do a job in this life that you may get to do for 40 or 50 years. And and, and if we sit down and talk, you can tell me the ins and outs of that. And that's a great thing. Don't, Don't misunderstand. I'm glad you know it so well. But you're really really unable to discern or discuss or talk about the doctrines of God's grace for sinners. A message that will empower you to live not just for 40, 50, 60, 70 years, but forever. If the gospel is what Paul says it is, the power of God unto life. If it is the very thing that makes our life worth living, if it is the very thing that enables us to actually live life, then I would suggest it is the thing that we should seek to fill our minds with. It's, it's for this reason that we've spent six weeks, the last six weeks since they preached that message on gospel centrality, the six weeks since, and this will be the seventh week, it, we have spent studying the individual doctrines of grace that we as a church might know that we might know what is the hope that we have, that we might know the inheritance that we've been given, that we might know the power of God that's been worked on our behalf. See, my hope would be that if I asked you right now, as a result of listening over the last six weeks, well, what do you believe about the gospel? That you'd be able to define it, that you'd be able to speak more intelligibly about it, that that, that, that in some way these last weeks have helped you learn and understand. But I, I would hope that it would be more than just a trivial set of information. It's something that you could answer uh, questions to in trivial pursuit. I, w- I would hope that over these last few weeks that you are able to understand better and know better what the gospel is so that, uh, that, that you're becoming more able, more empowered, more str- you're becoming stronger so that you can live the life you've been called to live. I would hope that, in growing in your understanding of the of the gospel, your knowledge of the gospel, that you would find greater strength to endure the very difficult days, the very evil days in which we must endure until Jesus returns. It it it, it, it never ceases to amaze me that when God speaks of when the, when the New Testament writers speak of the gospel, they think, say things like that God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms or that you have been given everything you need for life and godliness. And yet, when we face the struggles of life, we don't run to the gospel and the grace of God in the gospel, but we try to bear it out on our own. I would hope that as we grow in our understanding and knowledge of the gospel, that we would grow stronger to live the life we've been called to live, that we would be able to better endure the difficult and evil days that we have to live until Jesus returns. And I would hope that as we as we have studied and understood and grown in our knowledge of the gospel that and not just of the gospel but how it is that we've become beneficiaries of it like we have received this we have benefited from this that we would be that it would be the very thing that strengthens us every day to no longer live for ourselves but to the glory of God which is what we were created for and that you would enjoy him more. Because he didn't come to you demanding something from you. He came to you and he has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. He has given you in Christ. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. It is for this reason that as part of our doctrinal study, that that is absolutely necessary for us to spend these last several weeks looking at these doctrines, challenging us. Honestly, if you come to different conclusions than we do that that, let's talk about that let's let's discuss it but look to the scriptures find your strength in the scriptures. stand on what you believe because it says so in the scripture but i hope you've seen that that being saved that that coming into salvation is so much more than walking an aisle and saying a prayer Is is that the way many of us might have been saved, like the moment of our salvation? It might have happened in that way, but it is so much more. There's so much going on, so much more going on than walking an aisle and saying a prayer. There is so much more going on in the gospel than we can see from our small and finite perspectives. The, The gospel is a work that began in eternity past. Before the foundation of the world, God was at work making the gospel a reality. it's 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 a work that is happening right now in time all around us that God is saving his people, that he is bringing us out to know him. And it is a work that will be done that will usher us in to his eternal kingdom. And for the last several weeks as we've studied this, we've We've looked at these individual doctrines called the doctrines of grace, but today I want, I want to sum this up as we kind of close out this portion of our study. I want to sum it up, and I, I hope to be able to tie it all up for you so that you can see how it all works together, so that in looking at all the trees in the forest, we don't miss the beauty of the forest. So that's, that's what we're going to do today as we look at the fact that God graciously saves sinners like you and me. We're going to do that in in Ephesians, and I'm going to read for you, open with Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, but we're going to be all over the book of Ephesians, and so if you're just trusting on some verses being on the screen, and you're going to, you need to open your Bible, and you need to put put your finger there, and just stay there in Ephesians, we're going to be all over this book, I want you to see it from the scripture, and so None of these verses are on the screen, but we're going to be in Ephesians 2, we're going to be in Ephesians 1, we're going to be in Ephesians 4. Who knows, we may be in every chapter of Ephesians by by the time we're all said and done. I've got to be gone on Tuesday to go to Senegal, so we'll at least be finished by then. I'm just kidding. But Ephesians 2, we're going to begin in verses 1 through 10, and we'll see how this all works together, I pray. The Word says, this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Will you pray with me? Well, Father, I count it a privilege to spend these last several weeks. Focusing so intently, so closely upon what you have done to save us. To to look at your sovereign work that makes our response even possible. Uh, Look at your sovereign position and provision to save us as sinners. I pray today that as we study this, I pray, Father, that, that you would speak beyond me. That you would use your word to show us truth that you would reveal in the hearts of your people. The truth. You are our savior. You save us. Would you help us to see it? I pray in Jesus name. Amen. As by God's grace, we are saved. I I, I think if you were to summarize this teaching, that's what Paul would, we, we could agree that that's what Paul's teaching us. It's God's grace that has saved us. But if you look, he he speaks of a time, what we were. He speaks of a time of what is coming ahead of us. He he speaks of what we are becoming and what we have become. It is God's grace that saves us. It's God's grace that we're sustained by every day in salvation. And it is God's grace that will enable us to arrive safely home when he calls us there. It is all grace. It is God's grace that enables us. We believe. We believe believe that we have been saved from God's wrath by God's grace and power because of who he is, not what we deserve. Paul's description of our condition in this passage doesn't allow us to draw a different conclusion. doesn't allow us to hold a different perspective. We weren't just kind of sick. We were dead, is what he says. God's not just making us well. He is having to make us alive. Take away salvation by grace. And and we were in a hopeless, helpless situation. But Paul's point, it's not to heap on guilt. Paul's not teaching us this so that we will feel worse about who we were. It seems he's drawing a contrast here to help us realize and understand more fully, to know better what it is that we have to celebrate, to, to better understand what it is that God has done for us, to better understand what it took and what was necessary for God to save us. And if you look at the flow of the passage, just look, look at it with me. In the first three verses, in the first three verses, 1 through 3, it describes who we were apart from, from Christ, apart from God working through Christ. It describes where we were at, who we were, what we were bound in. And in the last two verses, in, in chapter uh, or in verses nine, nine and 10, it shows us who it is we've been made to be, who it is we now are because of Christ, and what we're capable of. And then in the, in the verses in between, we have this beautiful expression of what God did to bring us from where we were to where we now are. It, Paul's not wanting to heap on guilt here. He he wants us to recognize how God has exercised His grace, how how God has beautifully and majestically not brought condemnation on us, but but instead has saved us from His wrath, not because of what we deserve, but because of who He is. The the hinge pin of those verses 4 through 8, on on which those things swing, comes in two words. At the beginning of verse 4, But God has become, for me, two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But God. We were dead in sin, he starts off in verse 1. But God made us alive with Christ Obviously, Paul's not thinking, oh, they're spiritually or they're physically dead. No, he knows. They're they're walking around. They're making decisions. They're living life to themselves. He's making a reference to our spiritual condition. In our spiritual condition, we are powerless to do anything to affect our spiritual condition. Dead is dead. We have no power. (laughs) If not for the first two words of verse four, if not for a but God we wouldn't be surprised to say we were dead and we're still dead because dead things stay dead, right? But that's not how it ends. That's not how the passage flows. We were dead, but God being rich in mercy while we were still dead made us alive. It is because of what God has done. At the, end of, at the end of chapter 1, let me just show you this. Flip back to at the end of chapter 1. Paul is praying for these, for, for these saints in Ephesus. And he's praying that they would know the hope that they have. That they would know the inheritance that's waiting for them. And that they would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. God's power toward us who believe. That we would know it. And then he shows us how immeasurably great God's power is. It's the same power that he worked when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly. Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is power. This is massive amounts of power. He brought Christ from the dead, and hey, by the way, in the same way that he brought Christ from the dead, he brought you from the dead, and he made you live. That's what God has done for you. You were dead, but. God made us alive with Christ. The difference in our position, the difference in our standing, the difference in our ability is not us. It's God in His grace exercising His power for our benefit to bless us rather than condemn us. He goes on. We were enslaved. We were following, he says, in verse in chapter 2, verse 1. 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of body and mind. We were enslaved to these things, to the world, the flesh, and the devil the context the, the context, and the language, in the, in the original language, doesn't say this is just something we chose. Oh, I'm just happy. I like what the world is saying, so I'm going to go after it. It's not that, that, that we have a choice whether or not to, to live under the influence of the, the prince of the power of the air, which is at work in the sons of disobedience. No, he's, he's, he's saying that we are enslaved to it. We are dead in our sin and we are enslaved. We have no choice but to live under the influence, to be enslaved to the influence of the world. Just think about how much the world influences us even as believers today, how antagonizing that influence can be. While you were dead, you didn't have any choice but to think in the way that the world thinks. I was just talking to somebody this week, earlier this week about this passage and thinking through it and talking about the very fact that that in this passage what we see is that the, the world's telling us all kinds of things, influencing us in all kinds of ways. In fact, now, to speak truth to someone and call out sin and and call some activity sinful is actually considered hate speech in the world around us. You can't love someone enough to be concerned about the sin in their life that you say, hey, that's sin, would you repent of your sin? No, no, that's, that's hate speech is what the world would have us believe. The, the world has an influence, and, and that's a growing influence around us. But it's not just the world. The prince of the power of the air has an influence, it has, has, has a, a power. He's, he's not ultimate authority. He's not king. He's not been given all dominion, but he is a prince of the power of the air. He has authority. This isn't a reference to demonic possession in the sense that every time we look out at somebody that, that's not a believer or a Christian, that, they, oh, they must be possessed of the devil, and the devil's controlling them. No, no, that's not what he's saying. But he is influencing and he is, he is working to keep people deceived, to keep people stuck and, and bound up in their lives. Apart from Jesus, we're powerless to do anything but follow after him. You know why the world thinks that, that has grown to this place that thinks that, that to love someone is, it, by, by speaking truth to them is actually hate speech? Do you think they came up with that all on their own? Maybe. We're pretty smart. Or it could be that the enemy has been working behind the scenes to keep people believing lies, keep influencing with with things that sound good and have a bit of truth, but are still lies. He he goes on, it's not just the world and the devil. I mean, we can't blame everything on everybody else. He says that we're living our life following after the, the passions of our own flesh. I can't blame, I, oh, the devil made me do it. No, I, my, my, my sinful nature, my, who I am, wanted that sin, it seemed pleasurable, it seemed good, it seemed right, and it, I thought it was going to satisfy me. We pursue whatever it is we desire and whatever we think is good. We speak so often of, of having this free will that, oh, man, I got free will, I'm just going to exercise my will, when we fail to realize that our will is bound up in the the influence of the world, the influence of the prince of the power of the air, the influence of the passions of our flesh, our will that we speak about being so free. It's the product of being enslaved by, by evil forces, by a sinful fallen world and a flesh that wants anything but God. Paul is not painting a picture of us being free He is painting a picture of us being dead and enslaved. But God seated us with Christ. He changed our position in the world. He changed the proximity and and the influence. He put us under Christ. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. We were dead. We were enslaved. And oh, he goes on. It's not finished. We were children of Wrath. This is not a topic that a lot of churches want to talk on today because, oh, it's so negative. Like, why are we talking about God's wrath? Because it is justified. We have to talk about God's wrath. We have to understand that His wrath is justified. He is a holy God who we have sinned against. He is an eternal God who one sin rebels against. He is a righteous God who cannot be in any way associated, related to, or an intimate relationship with sin. We have to consider the wrath of God because that's where we were. But God, He saved us by His grace. He didn't give us what we deserved. He didn't give us what we could earn from him. He didn't give us what we should have gotten. He gave us grace. He made you alive. He pulled you out of the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. All they can do is now annoy you and antagonize you for a bit. But he has seated you. He has made you one with Christ. He has seated you in the heavenly places with Christ. He has put you in Christ. He has made you united to Christ. We were children of wrath, but God has saved us by His grace in Christ. Why did He do it all? Why did any of this matter? Why would He do this for us? Because of who He is. He's rich in mercy, verse 4. Because of the great love with which He loved us, verse 4. He did this, verse 7, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. You're not going to stop experiencing his grace at the moment you walk into salvation. You're not going to stop experiencing his his grace in in, in every day of this life. You are going to know his grace and he is going to continue to show you the immeasurable greatness of the riches of his grace in the coming ages ages, even when we step into heaven and we walk into his eternal kingdom and we stand face to face with our savior, we will know the greatness of his immeasurable grace by the kindnesses that he shows us in Christ Jesus. See, we don't get there. We don't understand that if we don't understand the wrath that we so justly deserve. We have been saved by God's wrath or saved from God's wrath, by God's grace and God's power because of who he is not what we deserve. We deserve death. We deserve slavery. We deserve God's wrath. But God gave us what we didn't deserve. God gave us what we couldn't give to ourselves. God changed us from the inside out and made us able to do what we had never been able to do before. And it may surprise you to know. It may surprise you to know that God was working this out He was working out your salvation, preparing for the day that you would come to know Him, believe in Him, and begin to walk with Him. He was making this possible long before you even realized you needed to be saved. Long before you realized that you deserved God's wrath. Long before you even realized there was a Savior to save. Now, theologians have have often called this the the Ordo Salutis, that's Latin. It makes people sound smart, I think. when they, Maybe people think they look smart when they use those Latin terms. It's really just a, it just means the order of salvation. It's really it. I'm not really that smart. I learned it from somebody else. So now you can walk around saying Ordo Salutis in your conversations, and people will think, oh, don't, that guy knows what he's talking about. If that helps. It's just a fancy way of saying order of salvation but they've used this order of salvation to help us understand that what God is doing here, that in those two words, but God, there is so much happening, so much being expressed that Paul is struggling, I think, to make it all known. In fact, he, he, he over and over in this first two chapters of Ephesians goes on these these uh, long expressions like he's writing sentences that, that are, are, are way longer than what typically you find sentences to be. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, there's like, I don't know, 200 and some odd Greek words that are used one right after the other. Very, li- no punctuation. He's, he's not breaking it down. He goes on this, this uh, what's been called by some as a waterfall of worship. In Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10, there's only two sentences in that whole passage because he's just so excited, so passionate, so moved by what God has done. But God has been working out our salvation. God has been working to the point where we would come to know Him, where we would come to trust Him, where we would begin to walk with Him long before we even realized we need it. And I just want you to see that today. I want you to understand the fullness of His grace, not by looking at an individual doctrine, but trying to see it all, trying to step back and look at the forest. And so if you would, look over at Ephesians 1. This would be our first stop. Beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Not some, not a few, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What has He held back from you? Nothing you need. He has given you every spiritual blessing even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. God elects us. God chooses us. I do not want to diminish the fact that there came a point in time in which you heard the gospel, you believed the gospel, and you responded by, I trust you, Father. I believe in you, Jesus. I know that I was a sinner. I know that I need a Savior. And I know you're the only way of salvation. I do not want to, to, to take that away from you. I want you to love that moment. I want you to long to experience more of the excitement that comes with that moment. But brothers and sisters, God's grace didn't start for you in that moment. His grace started for you all the way back before the foundations of the world. He chose you. He chose you. And why did He choose you? It says to be holy and blameless before Him. He chose you so that you would be set apart unto Him. He chose you so that you would be distinct His. You would be distinctly His. He chose you so that you would be blameless. So that all the sin that you have struggled with would not be held against you in any way. He looks at you and He sees nothing to condemn. It's beautiful. His grace started for you before He said, let there be light. Before He brought order from from chaos. Before He brought the land up out of the water. Paul says, He chose us in him that's in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him oh and it's not finished there's so much more here in him in him he pre I'm sorry in love in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through jesus Christ in this moment before the foundation of the world that he is choosing you and saying I know you and I want you he is saying I am going to order all of history I am going to predestine the moment of your life in time before time has even started ticking I am going to predestine that moment in which your adoption hearing will be had and I will make you my son And ladies, don't don't think he's cutting you out. The idea here is that sons in this culture, they they were the ones who had inheritance. And, And there's a big portion of this passage that speaks to our inheritance. We are all treated as sons. We all have this inheritance that we get to enjoy because he has adopted us into his family. He elects us. He predestines us for that moment. His grace began for you long before you ever realized you needed it now i know this concept's difficult for some of us to grasp i know some some of us wrestle with well, what, what if i'm not elect or what if what if someone i love is not elect paul presents this here as a reason to praise god blessed be god that means praise god even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world in love he predestined us praise god because when we read what we are or what we were in Ephesians chapter 2, we realize that if God hadn't chosen us, if God hadn't before the foundation of the world decided to do something for us, we'd still be dead. We'd still be enslaved. We'd still be by nature children of wrath. God chooses us. He elects us. God atones for us. He atones for our sin. He can't just ignore it. He is righteous. He is holy. He can't just act as if it doesn't occur. He can't just act as if we weren't dead as a result of it. To to maintain his own nature, to to work in accordance with his own nature, he had to atone for our sin. He had to pay for it. We see that in verse 7. Well, let's just read it in Verse four, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Oh, let me just say something here. Come on, can't just run past this. God didn't choose you because of what you would do. He chose you and predestined you according to the purpose of his will. It's his will, not ours. It's his decisions his purposes to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the blood in him in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses god has atoned for our sins he has paid the debt that our sins incurred so that he could freely and fully forgive us of our sins everyone that god has elected from before the foundation of the world everyone that god has predestined for adoption He has has taken care of their sin through Jesus Christ. God elects us, God atones for us, and God calls us. And to this point, we've been looking at God's work in salvation, and it hasn't even really entered our sphere, right? Like He's been working toward our salvation, and we're not involved in any way. He has been sovereignly working since before the foundation of the world. Jesus died 2,000 years before you were even thought about, before you were even considered by anyone on this planet. And yet, there comes a moment in which God, from, from His sovereign, eternal standing, stoops into our timeline and calls us. This is what's called an effectual call or a gospel call. It's distinct from from the general call so god uh, jesus one of the, jesus commands we're, we're actually going to practice this next week as we go into africa we're making a general call we're just preaching the gospel to anyone who would hear it we're called to do it every day when we get up and we go into our workplaces when we go into the city of springfield or go into our neighborhoods wherever it is we live wherever it is we roam we have been called to be preaching the gospel there's a general call that should be going out, but then there is this moment, this effectual call in which people are literally called into this hope. Now Paul he doesn't speak specifically about it in the letter of Ephesians. He doesn't, he doesn't ignore it. In fact, it's implied over and over. For example, in verse um, chapter one, verse eighteen, he is praying for the saints, and he says, he's praying, he said, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you to which He has called you. God has called you to this hope. That's the effectual call that Paul is talking about. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Again, it's something that happens to us. We are called. Just like when your mom at night... Lights, streetlights are coming on. Well, this is the way it was when I was a kid. I doubt it's like this anymore. Street lights come on. Mom come out on the porch or sister or whatever. Hey, come home. That's the idea that there's an effectual call that moves us. He implies it here in the book of Ephesians, but let me just read you a passage in which he, where he speaks more specifically to it. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, one of the most beautiful chapters of the whole Bible, Romans 8, verses 28 through 30, it says... You, He did the work of electing you, choosing you, predestinating you, and atoning for your sin. And you had no part to play in it at all. And guess what? Neither did I. And neither has anyone else that has ever been saved by God's grace. But there comes a moment in our life when some obedient believer goes out and preaches the gospel... And this general call goes out, and in that moment, God wakes up His people, and He calls them unto Himself. You remember that moment in your own life, that moment when you realize this: (laughs) this is true. I am a child of wrath. I am dead in my sins. I am stuck here under the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and there's nothing I can do. But God has called me. Some of us struggle remembering that moment because we were raised in churches, and and, and maybe that happened when we were very young. But just because you doesn't just because you doesn't just because you don't remember it doesn't mean it didn't happen. You didn't get into salvation without being called by God to salvation. He calls us. God regenerates and converts us. And not only is, is there this massive work that He's doing apart from us, lavishing His grace upon us. It says in Romans or Ephesians chapter one verse eight, lavishing upon us all this grace and wisdom and insight. Not only is he doing that, but he is making us radically new. And in fact, that's what, really what Ephesians 2 hits on. We were dead. We were enslaved. We were children of wrath. But, but he does something fabulous. He does something magnificent. While we were dead in our trespasses, he made us Alive. He gave us this spiritual birth. You remember a few weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Nicodemus starts asking Jesus questions. And Jesus says, Hey, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you have been born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you have been born of water and spirit. God does a work in us that gives us this spiritual birth. Obviously, Paul is not thinking... Jesus is not thinking that people are born in some physical way. We were dead spiritually and have been made alive spiritually. He does this work. And when He does, He changes us. He he takes what was dead and makes us alive. And and, and what does it say ends up as the result? In verse 8, you have been saved by grace through faith, that we now have this ability to believe, to to trust him, to place our faith in him and not all the lies that the enemy has been telling us all our life. Oh, you're not so bad. God's not angry with you. You're a good person. You're just misunderstood. If you could just make God understand what it is that you're about and Well, he'll let you in. He'll give you salvation. If you just do enough good things, he'll he'll save you. Now, obviously, we don't teach that uh, explicitly in churches. But then we do put that weight on one another all the time. Why aren't you living more like I think you should live? Why is it that I don't live up to your expectations? Well, are you sure you're good enough to be a Christian? How do we do it to one another all the time? The power for us to, to live and obey comes from the regeneration, the, the power and the ability for us to believe and express faith in him, to quit believing lies and trust that Jesus Christ is the only way that we will ever be saved comes from him. And there is this moment that then, because of his regeneration and because of his calling, we answer his call. And and we exercise this new, living, spiritually given will that we never had before. And we cry out to him and ask for forgiveness and plead for him to save us. (laughs) That is a beautiful, precious moment. That's still the result of God's active, working, powerful grace. Every ounce of it. He, he tells us in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8: For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Well, wait a minute. What's he talking about? It's not my own doing. Is it, is it my salvation it's not my own doing, or is it my faith that's not? It's probably both. The faith that you express is not your doing, it came from God's working in you, regenerating you, making you alive. And by the way, none of salvation has anything to do with you, except that you are the beneficiary of it. Let me, let me, let me retract that. It has a lot to do with you. You are the beneficiary of it, <laughs> but it did not originate in you in any way way nor did it with me not only then does he receive us and and hear our call and save us it tells us that the, the order of salvation goes on to say that he justifies us we've already talked about that a little bit he atoned for our sins and when he does look back in chapter one when he does it says that he then makes us holy and blameless before him he counts us righteous when he looks at you he does not see your sin he sees the righteousness of his son When when he looks at you, he doesn't look at at one who is a failure and 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 a regret and someone, man, I just wish I hadn't wasted some of my grace on you. He looks at you as one he has chosen and predestined to be adopted. And he says, you are now righteous. Through the death of Jesus Christ, God actually calls us innocent. And he justifies us and then he adopts us again. We see it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. We were predestined. What he chose to do before the foundation of the world becomes a reality. We are brought in to the family of God, to the household of God. We were children of wrath, but now we are children of God. We're not just citizens in his kingdom. We're children of the king. That's who you are. That's what he's done. And and, and the beauty is that doesn't stop at this moment of salvation. So here we have, before the foundation of the world, God has been working his grace on our behalf. After the the, the foundation of the world, he comes in moments in our life and times in our life and and he bestows upon individual believers the reality of all that he's done and he calls them by grace and he adopts them and justifies them and, and regenerates them and he gives them all that he's done by his grace. But it doesn't stop there. It continues on every day of our life from there on out. God sanctifies us as we obey Him. Let me just call this out real quickly. At at the end of Ephesians 2, verses 9 and 10, not the end of Ephesians 2, but the middle of Ephesians 2, in verses 9 and 10, this is not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship. That that word is poema. We are His work of art. We are His, His, His crafting, created In Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me just show you the the contrast here. At the beginning of chapter 2 in verse 1, you were dead in in uh, the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And what were you following? The course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, living in the passions of the flesh. At the end of chapter 2, or in the middle of chapter 2, verse 10, we're suddenly able to walk in a different way way, suddenly able to walk in a way that is good, that's beneficial. We can do these good works because God has saved us. He sanctifies us as we obey him. And so now we come to Ephesians chapter four. Ephesians chapter four, he starts to give us these commands. And if we disconnect it from the first three chapters of Ephesians and we go four through six and we try to hold them out there all by themselves, then all we're doing He's trying to live again in our own power to accomplish these things he calls us to. But, but Paul doesn't want us to do that. In Ephesians 4, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner... Listen, walk. Walk. It's the same thing he called us to at the end of chapter 2. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I want you to do the good works with which God has called you. I want you to walk in the good works that God has set aside for you to do ahead of time. That's what he's calling us to. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all and in all. But grace, listen, grace isn't finished just because we got saved. Grace is necessary for every day after being saved but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. He graces us in a way so that we can grace others. Let's skip down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building of the body of Christ until there's something we're working toward, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. God saves us and it's like we were infants. And then he, by his grace, begins to equip us so that we can grow up together into mature manhood to the fullness of the stature of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine so that we have stability in this life. So that when you hear the lies of the devil, you're not running off after them. So that when you hear some some charismatic TV preacher talking about, give me me 10 bucks and I'll give you a thousand, you're not deceived. So that when people that speak what sounds to be like sound doctrine, but then still call you to live in legalistic ways, command you to live in legalistic ways, you don't bow to their legalism. He grows us up by His grace. And and yes, we're called to obey Him. Yes, we're equipped to obey Him. Yes, as we obey Him, we grow up in that. There is this place now because of the work He's done by His grace to bring us to this place in His grace that we now can act, that we now can work, that we now can walk in accordance with the the, the life that He's called us to. He sanctifies us as we obey Him. And finally, in the order of salvation, I'm going to put these two together. God preserves us and God glorifies us. So let's get back to verse, chapter 1, verse 11. In Him, in Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Before the foundation of the world, He, he was electing, He was predestinating. And now in Him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined for this according to the counsel of His own will. So so that we who were the first to hope in Christ may be to the praise of His glory in Him. You also, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Let me just call this out. Let me just show you what happened in that verse. God had been electing. God had been predestinating. God had been atoning. And God was calling. And when they heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Because of God's grace, they believed in Him. They entered into salvation. They received His grace. And they were sealed, it says, with the promised Holy Spirit sealed. His mark was put on them. He, he, He covered them up. He made them His. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? To the praise of His glory, there is a reality from the moment that we step into faith, that we are sealed, that we are indwelt, that we are uh, uh, be, become uh, a residence of the Holy Spirit. That that He now keeps us, He preserves us, He makes us His, and He ensures. He ensures. He guarantees, if you will, that there will be a day in which we acquire possession of the inheritance that we have been promised. There's a reality that right now that possession, that, that inheritance is waiting out there for you. It is being reserved for you. It's protected by God in his power. And you are being preserved in it. But there is a point in which you will step into glory and you will take hold of that inheritance. And you will stand in the presence of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Because the Holy Spirit has sealed you until you acquire possession of the inheritance he has promised you. Brothers and sisters, why in the world, why in the world would we seek to stand in our own power? Why in the world would we try to to come up with a a better story, a better plan, a better way? Why in the world would we go about preaching a message of self-improvement or self-empowerment when the scripture is clear? The only hope we have is the grace of God. (laughs) But that is a great hope to be had. He has saved us by his grace and by his power from his wrath. Not because of what we deserve, but because of who he is. Let's pray.